2: Police have been asked to do things historically that probably they were not necessarily the best individuals to do it, whether it's dealing with homeless, whether it's dealing with mental illness on the streets, uh, traffic enforcement, school officers, and the like. My observation is, as a society, we haven't funded enough the public service aspect to provide support in those areas.
0: That's Cyrus Vance, Jr., He served as the Manhattan District Attorney since 2010. He first joined me on Stay Tuned a few weeks ago. Today, we bring you part two of that conversation. In part one of the episode, I spoke with Vance about the choices he's made throughout his tenure and his philosophy of prosecution. Some of what you'll hear this week was recorded on May 26th. I also sat down with Vance just yesterday to get his reaction to the protests against racism and police brutality, calls to reform or defund the police, and his approach to the many arrests made during the protests over the last several weeks. Stay tuned. There's more coming up right after this. Cyrus Vance, welcome back to the show. Thank you, Breed. So when when we initially spoke for the podcast, it was way back on May 26th, one day after the killing of George Floyd. And a lot has happened since then. We're recording this now on the morning of July 1st. And it made sense for you to come back and talk about, you know, how the world has changed, how the world may change in light of the protests. And so I guess my first question to you, which I didn't get to ask you before, because it hadn't happened yet. What are your overall reactions to the Black Lives Matter protests and how New York City in particular responded to them?
2: Well, I think the protests themselves, in my view, are a, Understandable and important expression of uh, you know, of sadness and anger uh, over not just Mr. Floyd's killing, but over many deaths uh, in the course of of many, many years. And uh, it was the reason why in making assessments on our office that we decided not to charge protesting individuals who were violating, some curfew or order to disperse with unlawful assembly or disorderly conduct. Uh, because uh, it's, it struck us that we need to be very careful how we use our prosecution authority. Uh, and we want to, as we, as we try to in our office, not bring people into the criminal justice system where, where it's either inappropriate uh, or it can send a, a message that can actually make things you know, worse on the streets. I would distinguish that, Preet, from the very serious misconduct, in my view, uh, of looting uh, into stores and uh, destruction of property and assaults on police officers, and, and one of which is being charged federally, I think, in the Eastern District, or assaults on a police vehicle. So... I feel that uh, at this moment in time, uh, there is going to be, in our office, it's a moment for us to evaluate not just uh, how we responded and how we respond to cases and potential charges writing out of the protests themselves, but also uh, an opportunity for, for me and us in our office to act quickly and evaluate what policy, what personnel, and what charging decisions we need to revisit as we operate the office going forward.
0: Do you have a sense off the top of your head of how many people were arrested by police during the protests, at least in in your borough, Manhattan, that you have chosen not to prosecute?
2: Uh, To date, um, well, let me tell you, overall, there have been, there are 389 burglary cases, and those are obviously breaking into uh, commercial Shops, as we saw on TV, and, and some of the conduct was you know, was shocking. Some organized individuals coming in and clearing out a whole store and then driving away. Um, 389 burglary cases, assaults on members of the police service were 22 cases, and we have to date done a careful review and dismissed 169 cases that came in by way of arrest, and and we will be making you know, additional evaluations on a case by case basis as we go forward.
0: And say again, where you put on the spectrum, the defacing of buildings and monuments and that sort of thing, as compared to looting and and assaults on police officers? You know, I I mean, I think
2: we, for example, have prosecuted a case of defacing St. Patrick's Cathedral. We did not immediately make an arrest, uh, which upset some, but it was in furtherance of making sure that we actually got the individuals who tagged or defaced the cathedral and uh, that we... Made sure that we were building a case that we felt was strong and appropriate, uh, and so we we don't tolerate, and I don't think publicly we should tolerate that kind of defacement either. That said, I understand there's these, a political, you know, there is a political uh, expression and real anger uh, that is being, you know, that we're seeing on the streets uh, with regard to individuals represented in those monuments and what they represent.
0: Has some of this been difficult to negotiate? With the police department, um, if you can say, and we talked about some of this last time, how the relationship between your office, the DA's offices generally, and the police department, has it been strained over this kind of decision making over who to arrest and who not to arrest and who to prosecute and who not to prosecute?
2: I think that these kinds of tensions you know, are always in the job between a prosecutor's office that is acting independently and a police department. Uh, that is you know, pursuing pursuing its mission, and the reason there's tension, as we talked about last time, is because I have a different job, uh, and I have a different set of of resources and a, and a, and a different set of rules that apply to whether we uh, can bring a case and sustain our proof than police officers have in making an arrest. There have been times of strain, um, but I have been in touch with the police commissioner. I have been in touch with Chief Monahan. Uh, we have spoken a number of times and there are uh, areas where I think we can do a better job talking through things where there are disagreements and trying to be clear with each other about what we are doing and why. And there are times that we are we are going to disagree. And that, I think, is actually you know the justice system working in a healthy way, not necessarily in a negative way, because as we talked about, I think, last time, Preet, you know, over the last five to 10 years, uh, I think one of the frustrations that police have felt is where prosecutors' offices like ours are are making independent criminal justice charging decisions um, and policy decisions that may run counter to what the police would like to have happen. But that, I think, is an evolution that is normal.
0: Separate and apart from prosecutions relating to the protests, and arrests relating to the protests. Is crime otherwise in New York City up over the last month?
2: Over the last month and a half or so, we have had an increase in homicides in Manhattan, what I would say is a significant increase. And that is of great concern to our office and to the police. Any, um, any, any
0: theories? Do you have any theories on that? Well,
2: I think the, the, I, I think the theory that uh, is being discussed by the police department, among others, is that the change in bail laws have resulted in essentially in folks who are not being detained and um, who otherwise might be and are committing crimes when they are not detained. In Manhattan, as of a couple of weeks ago, uh, we reduced our, our Rikers Island population because of the COVID-19 crisis and our concern that um, about the spread of the disease in Rikers Island by 45 percent between March and, uh, and, and several weeks ago. So a significant decrease, and I think for good reason. 11% of those who were released from Rikers Island on Manhattan cases have reoffended. I don't have a breakdown of exactly what. Now, you could look at that 11% as, you know, as, a, as a very negative factor, but you could also look at it as 89% of the fin- folks who were released didn't reoffend. None of this should be treated casually or frivolously. But I do think we are at a point where there is a lot of there is there is anger. Uh, there is probably a, you know, a, a disconnect between law enforcement and communities. And um, I'm always concerned, as I know you were, about access to guns uh, on New York City streets. And, and
0: is there any possibility that in the current climate, some members of the police department are being less aggressive and are stepping back a bit or no?
2: Uh, I, I really I certainly I think that's a possibility. I'm not sure that I'm in a position to say that has happened or not. I think that, I, I, th- I believe that the commissioner would say, no, uh, that's not happening. And uh, as I'm not out you know, uh, observing all the police, I can, I'm really not in a position to say. I will say that the number of arrests in Manhattan uh, actually has been significant over the last month and a half. So it's not a situation where we, in, in, uh, in April, we, the arrests went way down. Uh, in May, arrests returned uh, to significant levels, and on and and pre, on significant crimes. Uh, we're talking about you know shootings, uh, sexual assaults, uh, stabbings. I, I, I don't have an answer for why this is happening, uh, except for just speculation. On which I think is what we have to not do is is, is guess and speculate. But there have been significant number of arrests in Manhattan, and uh, you know, and we are we are dealing with them.
0: So one of the things that people have been talking about in a very, I think, deliberate and earnest way is reform. A few days after we last spoke at the end of May, you put out a statement in light of the protests in which, in a strong statement, in which you said, black lives matter and the use of excessive force by police in this country must end. And then you said a number of other things. And you said you supported the repeal of something called civil rights law 50A and laws which confer qualified immunity in cases of excessive force. First, explain to folks not from New York what Civil Rights Law Fifty A is and why that was
2: properly repealed. Fifty A was a New York law that provided confidentiality of police personnel records, the contents of which, uh, from at least a prosecutor's perspective, uh, are often relevant for us to understand uh, when we are proceeding with a case and we need to know who our witnesses are and 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 what the background of those witnesses. Uh, is as well. And we were disagreeing with the police department, uh, although we were actually accepted under 50A to have access to the material. We we had disagreements with the police department over several years about the timing of that access to us. The law now, uh, as amended, would give the public uh, access to some of these personnel records and disciplinary records, is probably more accurately put, uh, while still, I believe, shielding from the public uh, you know, aspects of a police officer's uh, personnel records that 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 are not sort of a matter of concern with regard to honesty or integrity.
0: And that's the case in most in most states. It brings New York in line with most places.
2: I, you know, honestly, I think it's I, I, I think it's probably in various forms in a lot of states. I think New York is my understanding. New York has in 50A was a very strong and strict law. And uh, and the repeal of that law ultimately, I think, is uh, is positive. It's why we supported it. And uh, I think in the long run, I think it will aid in having information that should be available, available to the public, and also uh, giving the public a sense of confidence of uh, of who is representing them as police officers in the streets.
0: And qualified immunity. Are you supportive of getting rid of that as a legal defense in all cases or certain kinds of cases, or what's your position?
2: I think that uh, officers uh, acting in furtherance of their job, uh, obviously need to uh, they need to be supported and, and feel that they are protected when they're out doing their job. At the end of the day, I think officers need to be uh, know that the law will protect them if they are doing their job and doing it appropriately. And if they are not, uh, that they don't get essentially uh, unwarranted immunity for misconduct.
0: There's some other things you and other district attorneys have come out in support of banning certain chokeholds altogether. Is that overdue?
2: I think it is overdue. And and I think the laws, the state law, uh, is the appropriate response. And what I would say, pre, if in terms of other things that are going on, I, obviously the, the laws were passed uh, or budgets were, were settled that are reducing the police officer's budget. Uh, and you know, my observation around that uh, is that it's a situation of the consent of the governed. The police have been asked to do things historically that probably that they were not necessarily the best individuals to do it, whether it's dealing with homeless, whether it's dealing with mental illness on the streets, uh, traffic enforcement, school officers, and the like. And my observation is, as, as, a, as a society, we haven't funded enough the public service aspect to provide support in those areas and i think you and i actually talked about this perhaps in the in, in the in the in the first discussion the mental health needs are enormous and we haven't funded that enough as a as a public responsibility and therefore the police have had to step in or been told to step in and take care of of, of those issues and i think ultimately my hope is that as the public is concerned about Areas where police are uh, should not necessarily be doing essential is not essential police services that we take the time to fund uh, fund adequately those services. You and I worked uh, in our in our foreign bank cases side by side, returning to the federal government and to the city and state of New York literally billions of dollars over the years. You and I worked together, but what we found in in some of those monies came back to our office by by virtue of forfeiture laws and. We made a very conscious decision in our office not just to use those dollars to support, for example, police technology or uh, crime prevention in NYCHA communities, but we invested money directly uh, with our authority in crime prevention strategies to to help families, criminally justice-involved or at-risk youth, uh, survivors and victims of crime, as well as returning offenders from prison, investing in programs that would help those individuals. So I think there, I think there is a model, uh, and, and ours is certainly one. How we can use public funds to invest in safer communities, safer families, supporting returning offenders. There's a way to invest these dollars that I think the communities would support, and that ultimately make us safer and make sense.
0: Yeah. No, I know you spent a lot of time thinking about those things, and, and had a lot of opportunity to spend public funds in those ways. I, I meant to ask you when we were talking about the protests. We talked about which protesters would or would not be prosecuted. Are there police officers that your office is prosecuting in connection with misconduct during the protests? Uh,
2: there are investigations which are ongoing and in process. Uh, it, we we obviously, as, as as we should, where police violence uh, unwarranted is involved, it needs to be investigated and we're appropriate prosecuted. We have a, a sort of a systemic approach to that now in the office, uh, both out of our official corruption unit, as well as information that may come into us whether it involves cases where individuals are themselves charged for burglary or, or other offenses, for example, and information comes to us uh, that may that, that may allege police violence or police misconduct, as well as a, you know, an exhaustive review of social media over the last over the last several months, so it's something that we are uh, we have a system and a structure in place in the office, I think, to responsibly and broadly look at and manage these issues, and they are part of what we'll be looking at as we look back on the on the unrest of the last month and a half.
0: Before I let you go, I wonder where you think we go from here. Um, if we have a conversation a year from now, what's your thought on the kinds of things that will have actually changed as opposed to just being talked about, both in New York and in the country? I mean, I'm wondering if you think this is a real inflection point or not.
2: I do think it's a real inflection point. I will say that, and permit me if I'm being too parochial, but the impact of Mr. Floyd's killing was obviously enormous and powerful in the country. It was also enormous and powerful in this office. And there was, and there is, anger, upset, pain among the professional staff here and the attorneys in this office and a questioning and a conversation very much uh, with me about this office and about how we will use this moment in time to evaluate our internal policies and practices, and our, as I said, our some of our professional staffing, as well as as programs in the community. So I think it's a big inflection point, and it's a big inflection point in this office. And I, th- I think more broadly, pre- what we experience in this office, I believe, is probably being experienced in prosecutors' offices all over the country,
0: and in every kind in, in every kind of office. I mean, my friends at law firms and at media organizations. It's something that I think is affecting uh, offices that are outside the realm of law enforcement as well.
2: Yeah, you no, know, I felt that. And, and, and my team here felt that appreciated this was a mo- this was an inflection point and that we needed internally to move quickly to make, uh, as I said, some changes that some significant changes around personnel structure and, and program and to seize this moment to actually move forward uh, and to demonstrate and to show that we we are listening and we there is change that needs to happen.
0: Cyrus Vance district attorney of Manhattan. Thank you for joining me again to talk about some of the things that have been going on. I really appreciate your time. You spent a lot of time with us. I appreciate you making uh, efforts to, to come back and speak.
2: As colleagues for eight years, the last couple of hours talking with you ha- has been a pleasure. And uh, it was it was a real pleasure uh, being your professional colleague for the time we had.
0: Thank you, sir. La- last chance to announce here on this show, whether you're running for reelection or not. <laughs> Hold tight. You're declining. Stay tuned, as you say. (laughs) Stay tuned, indeed. Cyrus fans, thanks again. Take care. Hear more of my conversation in just a moment. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Mint Mobile. The secret to Mint Mobile's premium but affordable wireless plans is that they sell them totally online. Mint Mobile was one of the first to cut out the costs of retail, and they then pass those savings on to you. By switching to Mint Mobile, you could say goodbye to an overpriced monthly plan or unexpected fees. You can get three months of premium wireless service for 15 bucks a month. That includes unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed 5G data. Signing up is super easy and painless, and you don't even need a new device when you do. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, you can go to mintmobile.com slash preet. That's mintmobile.com slash preet. You can cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash preet. $45 upfront payment required, equivalent to $15 a month. New customers on first three-month plan only. Speed slower above 40 gigabytes on unlimited plan. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Support for Stay Tuned comes from Squarespace. In this day and age, if you're starting a new project, one of the first things on your to-do list is creating a website. That might seem a bit scary at first, especially if you've never done it before. But there are tools out there that make it easy for anyone to create their own site, like Squarespace. Squarespace is an all-in-one platform that you can use to build a website and help people find your ventures. Creating a website with Squarespace is straightforward and painless, even if it's your first time making one. Whether you want to sell your products or a service, or need a place to host your blog or portfolio, Squarespace can help you get your name out there and makes it easy to find on the web. They have plenty of tools to help make your first website look pretty great too, all while customizing it to fit your particular needs. Because your site is your own, and it shouldn't be fit into a one-size-fits-all box. Get the functionality and the unique look that you need. Head to squarespace.com slash tuned to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain using code tuned. This part of my conversation with the district attorney was recorded in late May. It picks up with our discussion of Vance's sex crime prosecutions, which have attracted controversy over the years. If you haven't already... You can find the link to listen to part one of the episode, which aired on May 28th, in the show notes or the Stay Tuned archive. I'm going to ask you one one more of these cases, and then we'll, we'll go on to something else, because it's been in the news also. The Columbia doctor, Robert Hatton, who I think your office charged some years ago, and then there was a resolution with your office that allowed him not to get jail time. He's somebody who many, many people, including the wife of presidential candidate Andrew Yang, alleged that he had sexually abused uh, in his capacity as a doctor. And I think folks in your office have, have said something similar to what you've said about the Weinstein case, that it was a bit of a different time. Is there anything you want to add with respect to that case to the record?
2: No, I, what I want to add that, as I think I've, you know, I've, I've expressed previously, is we want to be an office where survivors know they can come to and be listened to objectively. And the response of the survivors in the Haddon case was in part that they were critical of the way the office communicated with them. I was not directly involved in the case, but they were they were critical and felt that they weren't listened to. And if that happens, that's wrong. And to the degree that we have made survivors feel that we didn't think they were important, that's wrong. But as you we're saying in the resolution to the prosecutors who made that call in 2015 of a felony conviction, a surrender of the medical license for the rest of a career was an appropriate resolution, but that will never that would never, and I completely understand why, will not satisfy those women who feel that they uh, they they were not credited.
0: In looking at that case now with with 2020 eyes. No play on twenty twenty hindsight. Uh, do you think you would have reached the same resolution if it were today?
2: I think we probably would have done additional investigation than than where we resolved it in two thousand fifteen.
0: So you had a successful prosecution of Harvey Weinstein, and I want to I want to read a quote from somebody. And I was telling my own team we were discussing this interview that people would say this from time to time about a big case out of my office, and I would find it highly irritating. This news report said, quote, the verdict was a victory for the Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus R. Vance Jr., as if it's a victory for you personally, not for the office, not for justice, et cetera, et cetera. They like to personify an office that way. The verdict was a victory for the Manhattan District Attorney Cyrus R. Vance Jr., whose legacy is likely to be largely defined by the outcome of the case, end quote. How irritating is that sentence to you? (laughs) I'm giving you an opportunity to vent on my podcast about that analysis.
2: Well, at least I'm glad that the outcome was positive in the way that it was for the survivors in that case, who I just have to say uh, were really courageous women who opened themselves up on the witness stand over the course of weeks uh, and really held nothing back, acknowledged things that people couldn't understand and did their best to explain them but fundamentally as i had hoped when the jury saw them and heard them there would be questions of course but they would believe them i felt that was important in a lot of ways but i would in terms of uh you know legacy in that issue i really try to stay away from what i think is kind of presumptuous maybe i'm too simple on this but You you know, I've had the job for 11 years, probably close to a million cases. have come through the office during that time period, maybe 750,000 to a million. And the job is much more than winning or losing cases that get notoriety in the press. As I say, probably 5,000 sex crimes investigations, 6,000 white collar uh, investigations. Yeah, you're not going to get any argument.
0: Look, I I commiserate with you on this, which is why I read you the quote. And I wonder if the public sometimes gets kind of a distorted understanding of, of not just a particular prosecutor's office, but also criminal justice generally, when a lot of what they learned about how the process works is through the prism of a few sensationalized and famous circus-like cases or cases that have a circus-like atmosphere course, around them. Of course. And what do you do about explaining to folks day after day after day, there are all these non-controversial cases they get brought that the most estimable public servants bring with the highest degree of professionalism and integrity, and justice is won for so many ordinary people, but it's just not going to be on the front page of the New York Times. Right.
2: It's it's I think it's a frustration that you uh, experienced and that that I experience. When I just think of you know, for example, you know, gun violence in uh, in economically disadvantaged neighborhoods. Uh, those cases have been the subject of terrific, intense investigations by your office, by our office, and for a long period had enormous success in making those communities safer. Uh, not that much interest in that story. But give me a more important issue than than gun violence. And I would say there probably isn't any more important interest uh, than the safety of our, our citizens from being shot and killed. There are other crimes which are just as serious, but that's as serious as any. And it just doesn't resonate in most of the reporting that covers criminal justice.
0: Sort of the way it is. I want to ask you about what you refer to as sort of an evolution in prosecutorial thinking and other broad decisions you've made to not prosecute certain kinds of things. I think that's where we're heading. And I think that's very important for people to understand. But a preliminary question I want to ask you that is probably quite overbroad, but really a critical question in any discussion about criminal justice and law enforcement. And that is the the degree to which race is still a defining problem in how law enforcement is accomplished and justice is achieved. So discuss that in a couple of minutes and then we'll get to specifics because from what I understand, some of these decisions you're making relate in large measure to the issue of race and discrimination that exists still in New York City.
2: When I ran for district attorney with my experience having come from trial practice and criminal defense, I wanted to evaluate the Manhattan District Attorney's office in terms of statistical outcomes of cases and whether they reflected implicit bias. I don't think our office I don't think our office engages in explicit bias, but implicit bias we all are subject to that to a degree. And so I brought the Vera Institute of Justice into our office in 2012 and they did about a two-year review of our sentencing recommendations, charging decisions, bail requests on a large number of cases, and issued a report, I think, in 2015, which we are going to be updating uh, within the next six months. And it was essentially a statistical analysis of decision points, and did they reflect the potential for implicit bias? And the answer in 2015 was there were a number of metrics identified that could be the result of implicit bias, which... Then helped us inform uh, some of the management decision-making practices that followed in our office, practices such as having the entirety of our office go through implicit bias, bias training, by appointing a chief diversity officer to address race not just in the hiring but in the context of our big picture decisions. And so, later on in time, you know, as I moved further down the road, it became clear to me that there. You know, the uh, office that has 100,000 cases a year, probably 85 percent of those cases may end up being uh, men and women of color brought into the justice system for a range of offenses. And I believed that the progress that could be made was to reconsider how we handled the 80,000 lower level offenses such as marijuana possession and smoking, theft of services, petty larceny. And between 2012, pre when we had 100 plus thousand cases to the end of 2019, we reduced our office caseload from 100,000 to 45,000. That reduction being comprised in the better part of declining to prosecute lower level offenses, where we believed that the individuals who were being arrested and charged were overwhelmingly men and women of color where the judicial system and the and the justice system that those cases were being brought into was not accomplishing productive intervention with the individuals who came into this into the system, I'm repeating myself that the, the consequences were disproportionate to the consequences on their their lives, the consequences such as not being able to get a student loan, limitations on housing. So we really focused on the greatest body of cases in our office, which were by and large the least serious and tried to significantly right-size our office's criminal prosecution uh, with an eye towards looking for either diversion at the precinct level, so those cases didn't have to come down to 100 uh, Center Street, or not bringing those cases at inception by indicating the police department that we wouldn't do that.
0: I want to talk about a couple of examples. Perhaps the most timely is what law enforcement and what prosecutors are doing in the middle of this pandemic. And so everyone now understands the term social distancing. It is the sort of um, the lay of the land, especially in New York, that has suffered so much loss because of the coronavirus. And here's a a statistic that I found kind of stunning. With respect to the issue of whether or not prosecutors in New York should prosecute folks who have been arrested by the NYPD relating to social distancing, I saw a report that suggested that more than 90% of those arrested in the early weeks were Black or Hispanic, and white folks made, only, made up only 7% of all arrests. So tell us what decision you have made with respect to prosecuting people for being arrested for not social distancing,
2: and why. We made the decision that we are not prosecuting cases uh, for violations of social distancing or other violations of the governor's order we're comfortable that we want don't want to make this health crisis into a criminal justice crisis, and if someone is, however, commits another crime, whatever that crime is that involves police starting out by talking to the person about social distancing, that we we may prosecute those cases. I think we've had six cases where social distancing was involved. Uh, no decision was made over social distancing, but. Two cases, I think, were prosecuted where charges were brought against an individual, independent of the social distancing. There was just a separate criminal offense, which followed. And uh, I think two weren't and several are are under investigation. And separately,
0: what's your view on compassionate release for people who are incarcerated to deal with and mitigate the coronavirus? My, my understanding is that there's been a dramatic reduction
2: in who is incarcerated. We have worked hard as an office to accomplish something that I've wanted to accomplish previously, but we had not yet done so, which is to do a census of everyone who is in Rikers Island on a Manhattan case to understand granularly, who is this person? Why are they in Rikers Island? And are there reasons that they should be released uh, during this period of, uh, of the pandemic? The Rikers Island population overall has been reduced from about 6,000 individuals for all five counties at the beginning of the pandemic to about 3,800 about a week ago. The individuals detained in Manhattan were reduced 45% during that same period. I sent a memo out to the staff, which I'd be happy to share with you, early on in this process where I said to them, you know we are in an extraordinary time, and we have to act with sort of a scope of, of of vision here as to whether we need to apply different rules at this time, not necessarily for all time. And it's about really exercising our discretion, not about bail factors, which are in statutes in New York, but trying to identify people who were incarcerated, who we really believed presented a a real clear danger if they were released or risk of flight. When we did that evaluation, as I said, we have reduced the population by 45%. Some of those were the reduction of folks we did not object to who the city identified as being medically compromised. Uh, Some of those were just on our own evaluation. Some of them resulted from talking with defense lawyers But it was, I think, all the parties in the system, not just our office, but that reduction of whatever that is, 45 percent, required prosecutors in our office to be more open-minded and more, I think, uh, circumscribed about who should be in custody.
0: You said something interesting. You said this is something you've been wanting to do for a while. So it's not only because of coronavirus. Are you saying that in some way it's the, I hate to use this word, but the opportunity the coronavirus presented that allowed you to come up with some mechanism by which you could reduce the Rikers population, because, as as you know better than I, there have been folks who have who have criticized the percentage of, of people who are in Rikers Island attributable to the Manhattan DA's office. Manhattan, as I understand it, has twenty percent of the overall population of the city, but according to one report, has forty had forty percent of the population in Rikers Island. So, is this something that is going to be a continuing policy beyond COVID, or is it something that's just temporary?
2: Manhattan has always, I think, had a, what I'll just call disproportionate number of folks in Rikers Island, men and women. In part, Preet, it's because we are the grand larceny capital of the city. we have always been very proud of that. <laughs> yeah. Uh, our larceny numbers in Manhattan have historically always been through the roof. And those numbers uh, have come down or because of bail reform or because of our decisions, those individuals are not... Uh, being held in on bail, but to take the question further, one of the things that will be different and and as ch- and will be a lasting change from this epidemic in terms of our office and Rikers Island is the practice that we should understand for every person in Rikers Island why they are there and be able to respond to whether it is a court's question or uh, if appropriate a journalist question or be publicly accountable to uh, the decision-making that we've made to keep someone incarcerated. I think that will continue past the epidemic, and I think that's a good thing. And I think we ought to be able, for any individual who is in Rikers Island, to be able to pull a file and say, okay, I, I see, or I see what, no, this isn't quite right. But let's, let's make a change here.
0: And you believe Rikers Island should be closed?
2: I have expressed my view that Rikers Island should be closed. I think Rikers Island, partly it's like Alcatraz. It's got a history that needs us to move past it and all it represents. Uh, I think there are ways in which borough-based jail cells, assuming they can be built and they can be built in time and with the money that's available, uh, to present a more modern and a more uh, welcoming, for want of a better word, but a, a prison facility that is not just cold concrete and steel that's where we should be headed. Whether the money still exists to do this uh, is a decision that's over my over my head.
0: Can I ask you about some of these things that you're doing and other prosecutors are doing to stop prosecuting certain types of crime like fare evasion and other things? Is that a sign that the doctrine or theory of broken windows policing
2: is a dead letter? And should it be? No. Um, I'm just hesitating because I'm not you know, I'm not reviewing any of these decisions with regard to the doctrine of broken windows policing. I think broken windows policing, and I'm not an expert, but that term was coined and it was applied at a different time in our city. It was that time that we talked about at the very beginning of this interview where crime was out of control. And we are in a different time. And we were in a different time in 2019, uh, which is why, you know, we were, our population of folks we brought into the courtroom by forty-five percent, and crime continued to decline. So there is a greater awareness, I think, of options to traditional prosecution that ends up actually enabling the city to continue to enhance safety. And that's uh, that's why I think broken windows. You know, I, I get it, but we have been reducing our prosecution of these low-level offenses. And crime continued to decline in Manhattan, and I think in the city broadly. Now, on
0: fare evasion, I heard Commissioner Bratton, with whom I worked also, and consider him a friend, speak a lot about how that was a really important thing to prosecute, because from time to time, you would get somebody who maybe was wanted on a warrant and a more serious crime. And he said a few years ago, quote, the New York miracle, if you will, began with fare evasion, fare evasion enforcement on the subway 25 years ago, end quote. So, but something from the past, when you made the decision not to prosecute those cases anymore, do you get any angry calls from current current or former NYPD folks?
2: I did speak with Bill Bratton, who is both a friend and someone I admire a great deal. And I and I know how he feels about it. I think Jimmy O'Neill, the commissioner after him, uh, had some of the same concerns. But at the end of the day, Preet, I've got a different job than the police. I have my own, I have an office with budget, with resources, and when I have to spend $2,000 to prosecute a $2.50 theft when we spend through court time, attorney time, court officer time, defense lawyer time, and nothing happens to those cases if they're prosecuted. Prosecuting someone for theft of services results in one result, a sentence of time served if they plead guilty. So it's an enormous devotion of time and effort to cases that are not providing any either intervention or punishment. Uh, and... At the time that this controversy was being discussed in 2019, transit crime continued to be low. And with something like seven felony robberies committed in a day on a city, that, however many people were in in the subway system a day, 3 million?
0: Well, not anymore. (laughs) Now it's probably gone down a lot. Yeah. Any other types of prosecutions? Uh, What's your view of criminalizing possession of certain kinds of knives?
2: Well, my view was, and we in fact achieved a settlement early on in my years as DA uh, with regard to gravity knives. Our position, the police department position, frankly, the governor's position until last year was that gravity knives, which are knives that are designed to flick open using gravity and a flick of the wrist, you know, present the same kind of risks as does a switchblade or a stiletto. Ultimately, the legislature decided that they wanted to decriminalize possession of those knives, and that is their prerogative. And they were clear about a, a change they wanted.
0: So we've gone very, very long into an interview, and I have yet to ask you about that thing that a lot of people will want me to ask you about. And by that thing, I mean that person, also known as the president of the United States, Donald Trump. <laughs> uh, Mr. District Attorney Cyrus Vance, what, what what are you doing involved in an investigation of the president? His lawyers say you have no business even engaging in thinking about an investigation, much less trying to get documents, or bringing a charge against the president? What what are you doing?
2: Well, Preet, I'm going to have to demur on everything but the most general comments.
0: Well, can you just, I, I know because there's a Supreme Court case pending, but can you just, in a minute, describe what it is that your office is seeking?
2: Sure. Look, the Manhattan District Attorney's Office has jurisdiction and a history of successful investigation in crimes that go far beyond what if there's a word typical prosecutor's office, uh, handles because we're in Manhattan, which is the entertainment center of America, if not the world, the business center. And so uh, if there is an investigation that needs to be done of businesses and individuals in the event that there may be questions about conduct of those individuals and businesses in Manhattan, you know, that is something which our office has historically, and I think should continue, even if the federal government is unwilling or cannot, for whatever reason, conduct those investigations.
0: Right. And so just, I don't think we're, we're getting into anything that's inappropriate, given that the case is pending. But essentially, what's a controversy, what's in controversy, is that your office is seeking financial documents and tax records relating to the president and his associates from a third-party accounting firm. Is that right? Right. Right. And Carrie Dunn of your office argued in the Supreme Court, by the way. Everyone says he did a very nice job. Were, you, were you, can you? Can you answer this question? Were you proud of him?
2: Uh, Gary is one of the <laughs> smartest uh, and most talented lawyers that I know. And so I think he acquitted himself uh, very well in that argument.
0: And But you're not going to handicap it in any way.
2: I'm not going to handicap it in any way.
0: And you're not going to say anything else about how, I'll say it for you in the stem of the question, and then you can decline comment. You're not going to say anything about how ridiculous the argument of the the president's lawyers is, that he could literally shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and putting aside whether or not he could be indicted for it the local district attorney couldn't even investigate. Do you have a comment on that, Mr. Vance?
2: Well, I I can make this commitment. I will have a comment. (laughs) When and if the Supreme Court renders its decision. Do you have a prediction Uh, as to when that might be? Well, I I don't, I'm not a Supreme Court guru, but I'm led to believe it will be in the month of June or possibly into July because I think things have been a little slower and pushback back uh, because of the virus.
0: Did you have a reaction to how, the case against Paul Manafort concluded?
2: Look, I think that was another case where uh, we believe there were, you know, there was evidence of criminal misconduct by Mr. Manafort in New York, serious crimes around real estate finance. And uh, we believed that he should be held accountable for that serious criminal misconduct in New York, in New York court, and that this was not prevented by the fact he had been prosecuted in the federal government. And there was a sort of a detailed analysis. I think, you know, they're looking at number one, do the state court crimes have the same elements as the federal court crimes? And number two, are the statutes dealing with federal offenses and bank fraud in some way fundamentally different uh, than the state statutes? Uh, and one, I think, the and, and to us, one deals with protecting the bank and the other deals with protecting the shareholder or the, or the person with money in the bank or with a mortgage. So that's now before the appellate division. Uh, we filed briefs and I think the briefs are excellent. And uh, we think that uh, You're not going to handicap that both. either though. Well, I, Go ahead, please. Well, I, I, I've, I've, we've, we have felt from inception that applying- you know, applying the legal analysis that we think does apply, uh, that this case you know should proceed in state court, and that's something that just shouldn't be allowed to pass away because you know, he was convicted by some count of some counts in a, in a federal court.
0: Do you want to announce right here on this award winning podcast whether you will seek
2: a fourth term as district attorney? I'll tell you what I, I don't. What I you feel hesitated is- for a
0: second. I th- I thought I was getting lucky there.
2: Yeah, I, I, I don't. I've, you know, it's been, a, it is a privilege, and it has been a privilege, and it's been fascinating.
0: Support
1: for this podcast comes from Constant Contact. If you're a business owner, you already know that it's really, really hard to cut through the noise of everyday life. If you want to connect with your customers, you need to break through the noise. You need Constant Contact. Just go to constantcontact.com right now. Constant Contact, helping the small stand tall. Constantcontact.com.
2: Big and interesting, and you and I have shared some of those experiences together to have been DA. it's, it's, It's really been extraordinary. But at this moment, I'm not worried about running or politics. It's still quite a long way away. And my focus is on an office that needs to be led. Uh, and I mean that led collectively through a very, very difficult period where there is uh, there is uncertainty and there is fear by many of the participants in the criminal justice process that come to our office, uh, lawyers, staff, victims, police officers, you name it. And that needs to be managed to a I need to be sure that I'm doing everything I can to to manage that process as we go through it. So that's a no. That's a no. I'm not going to announce it. I'm not going to announce anything. That's a no. You know, I can ask this question
0: from time to time, but I'd like to ask another esteemed prosecutor. Do, Do you think of people as being, are there bad people or only people who do bad things?
2: Well, I think everybody comes into the world innocent. So I don't believe there are bad people who come into the world, uh, something happens to them along the line where they, you know, they fall off the tracks. Why that happens? You know, uh, in so many cases, you and I see, Preet, that folks get involved in criminal misconduct because, because of stuff that's not their fault. Uh, lack of employment, lack of education, lack of housing, addiction. I mean, there's there is, of course, the concept of individual responsibility. I don't deny that. But it's also true that the American dream of prosperity and freedom is delivered in different doses depending upon where you grow up and where you reside. I do think that as adults, there are some people who are, who present as just dangerous and violent. And you could look at each of them and try to go back in their past and see if you can determine where it started and why it started. But I don't think anyone starts in this world as a bad person. I think you become that. And you can become that.
0: Cyrus Vance, thank you for your service. Thank you for coming on the show.
2: Really appreciate it. Thanks, Bree.
0: My conversation with Cyrus Vance continues for members of the Cafe Insider community. Insiders get bonus Stay Tuned content, the exclusive weekly podcast I co-host with Ann Milgram, recordings of my weekly notes, and more. To get a free two-week trial, head to cafe.com slash insider. That's cafe.com slash insider. Well, that's it for this episode of Stay Tuned. Thanks again to my guest, Cyrus Vance Jr. If you like what we do, rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Every positive review helps new listeners find the show. Send me your questions about news, politics, and justice. Tweet them to me at Preet Bharara with the hashtag AskPreet. Or you can call and leave me a message at 669-247-7338. That's 669-24-PREET. Or you can send an email to tuned at cafe.com. Stay Tuned is presented by Cafe. The executive producer is Tamara Sepper. The senior audio producer is David Tattashore. And the Cafe team is Matthew Billy, David Curlander, Sam ozer Staten, Calvin Lord, Noah Azulai, and Jeff Eisenman. Our music is by Andrew Dost. I'm Preet Barrara. Stay tuned.